0: And our, our students, uh, Pastor John is here today, and he just welcomed a, a new baby, little baby Elliot, beautiful girl. Congratulations, John. And more so, congratulations, Abby, right? Come on, let's be honest, that's uh, even the numbers in that household. Uh, it was wonderful to see our children, the Lord's entrusted to our care as our children continue on in their series through the Old Testament, uh, as they pick that up today again. It was a, a joy to join uh, and to be uh, one of the youth leaders uh, this week in Estes Park. Uh, what a great team of leaders we uh, uh, were able to serve this week, and it was a joy to be able to spend time with some 40-ish or so of our, of our youth students. I know we have many more than that, but it was a blast to get together to spend time, lots of laughter, lots of learning, uh, and uh, and I learned a lot of things. You know, I learned that if... My three boys, when they become teenagers, smell anything like the five boys that I dormed with for five days. I will be spending a lot of money in air fresheners in the coming years before me. Uh, but it truly was tremendous to see our students hunger to know the Lord, a desire to know Him better. Uh, that entire experience, it was, it was just pretty neat. So in all of these things, as they, as they fit together in our lives, we see in Moses's life, a willingness to travel a great distance. Now, he didn't travel, as you remember, from Egypt to Midian to know the Lord. He fled fleeing for his life, and now he's formed this life. He's married one of Jethro's daughters. He's become a shepherd, not of his own sheep, but of a sheep that don't even belong to him. He's this sojourner shepherd and so having traveled 200 miles away to Midian, now as we pick up the text in what well, our elder uh, Jerry, or Ralph read for us a moment ago, uh, we see that he's traveled even further. So he's a man who's traveled away from the consequences, but now leading this flock that's not even his own, he's traveled off into the middle of nowhere. But fortunately, God knows where the middle of nowhere is. As he seeks to meet the Lord, we ask the Lord, as we make three observations from our text today, to give us insight, to shepherd our hearts and souls, that we might learn a greater insight in this scene in which Moses meets the Lord, the people that the Lord has prepared for him to deliver out of the hands of the Egyptians. So let's begin, as we notice first in verses 1 through 3, that the Lord meets Moses where he is. We're also going to look at the fact that Moses responds to this. The Lord meets Moses where he is in verses one through three. Right away, the text reminds us, the last time that we saw these seven daughters, this flock, it was being tended to by Jethro's daughters. The picture is that there was no man in the picture to take on this responsibility. Perhaps Jethro is not of an age able to do so. And similar a little bit to Ruth and Boaz. Now, Moses takes on that responsibility, freeing the daughters of that responsibility. And so here he is, he's shepherding Jethro's flock. He tends to this flock at a place called Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. So if you're a note-taking person, you can just put a little slash there when you read about Mount Sinai. We'll see it again in chapter 19. This is the place where the Lord will come to Moses and give him the commandments. He's a great distance from all of these places, but the Lord meets him in this relative middle of nowhere. We can say the Lord is good in that way, isn't he? he is a God who meets people where they are. But as we see in Moses' life as this progresses, just because the Lord meets us where we are doesn't mean he intends for us to stay where we are, does it? His commissioning and meeting Moses in the wilderness will not simply be for worship experience, but because of God's great love and mission, he will propel and commission Moses to go and to deliver these people. Now in verse 2, we see this individual is called the angel of the Lord. Did you see that? Uh, There is a little bit of debate here and and some would say no consensus. I'm persuaded if you're looking for some good summer reading, a great book called 40 Questions About Angels, Demons, and Spiritual Warfare by uh, John Gullui gives a great argument for why this particular scene, I think, is just talking about an angel of the Lord, representing the Lord. And so some debate back and forth. Is this angel of the Lord, is this talking about uh, a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament through the burning bush? Is this speaking about perhaps even the second person of the Trinity, the son? Is he here in the bush? Or is this uh, an angel representing the Lord? I think the argument is, I'm persuaded that this is the angel of the Lord. And the main reason of all the arguments I'm persuaded is because Stephen says so. And you know, as long as we're in Moses, I'm not talking about this Stephen, uh, though he might say so. Uh, But in... Acts chapter seven and Acts chapter seven verse thirty in Stephen's sermon before he's executed he references this and refers to this scene from the burning bush uh, that is not consumed as an angel of the Lord speaking to Moses. But what's significant for us? Don't get caught in that. What's significant is not who this is. It's it's to whom does this represent? And to that there's complete agreement. It's the Lord is represented here. Speaking in this bush that is not consumed, how does the Lord get his attention? By appearing in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, I have a confession to you. If you need artistic instruction on how to draw a burning bush, this is what I spent most of my preschool and Sunday school years growing up drawing. Every day they would give us something to color on, and every day I grabbed the orange, yellow, and reds and made the most incredible burning bush imaginable. So... I've been thinking about this text for a long, long time. The burning bush. It's almost like it has a source that is not consumed. Now, we as the reader, as we saw in the book of Job and in so many other stories in Scripture, we have an insight that the one experiencing does not yet have. We know as the reader here in Exodus chapter 3, we know that this is the Lord speaking through this angel in this bush that burns, that is not consumed. But Moses doesn't know that yet, does he? He's using his scientific reasoning, his logic, and his faculties. He's an expert in life. He's traveled a long ways. He's in the middle of nowhere. And he sees this bush that's burning, but is not consumed. Which is not normal, Correct? Now, there's no wayward firework that's found its way. And if there was, it would burn up totally. But this bush burns and is not consumed. And Moses makes a deliberate decision. Like a Midwesterner in tornado season, he's going to get closer to the action. He decides to go closer. And the text gives us this interesting insight to this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. What did Moses do? He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. As we see in several cases of the Old Testament, with oil that the Lord gives on one occasion, through Elijah, of oil that does not run out, the Lord is a consuming fire. It's as though he has no limit to his fuels, because God is eternal in nature. Here he is in this bush that burns but is not consumed. And Moses makes a decision to respond by moving toward rather than away from the bush that is not consumed. Now, perhaps this could be taking a text too far. And it might be. But I think we're fair to ask a question on this component. When the Lord gets our attention... Is our instinct to move closer in response to him or further away remember moses plays this unique part in redemption history the law through moses and grace and truth through jesus christ but i think at the very least we can ask ourselves what is the trajectory of my life today if i was to look over the last three months is my life living a response closer to the presence and knowing the lord and obediently abiding in christ or Is my life perhaps drifting in a different direction? A desire for my own pleasures and pursuits. And what an opportunity, and the fact that we're here together, to gather today and to sit under His Word, to sing His praises. What an opportunity the Lord gives us in gifting us with a text like this. That this would be an opportunity to slow down and to stop and simply confess to the Lord a desire today to... Greater changing of mind that leads to a changing of action to move our response in a direction toward the kindness of a God who loves us and cares for us. That's how good our God is. You see, the Lord meets Moses where he is, and Moses responds. And secondly, in verse 4, the Lord knows, and he calls Moses by his very name. The Lord who meets Moses where he is knows Moses personally. And Moses responds yet again. Notice in verse 4, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now everyone's favorite name is their own. We all love to hear our name. a matter of fact, as I'm finding with our boys, as they're learning what the letters are in their name, anytime Uriah sees a U, what does he do? That's clearly his name. It could be unicorn, it could be umbrella. He's like, my letter. He calls them numbers a lot, though. My number! That's your letter. But you you got it. You're on the right track. We love from our earliest of ages to hear our name. Now, I don't know if we would love to hear our name from a bush that's burning but not consumed. That could be of an alarming factor. But the Lord speaks through the angel and cries out to Moses, Moses, Moses. And he says what? Here I am. Now, if we know the story of Scripture when we come to Isaiah chapter 6, and as you remember, and as Pastor Stephen led us so well a moment ago at the beginning of our service, if you look at the outline in our worship service, you'll see God, man, Christ response. When we look to the Lord, we marvel at His glory and His attributes and His praiseworthiness and His perfection and His holiness. But soon after doing so, we can't help but notice The man portion that we don't measure up. We come short of his glory. And then we're naturally reminded, oh, but praise God, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, we're clothed in Christ's righteousness and now called to live a life of response, loving others and serving them and proclaiming the good news of Christ to all until he should call us home. In Isaiah chapter 6, you can write that down as a reference, we see a very similar thread. Now, Isaiah benefits just as we benefit from reading the Scripture. Isaiah would have been familiar with this account, and so perhaps he learned from Moses' decision. For in the Isaiah scene, he sees the Lord, he interacts with the Lord. In this scene, and the Lord says, to whom will go for me? Whom, to whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. Send me. Now, Moses in this text begins the same way. Moses, Moses! And what does Moses say? Here I am. Now, as the passage progresses, and you know this, we're just looking at the first portion of this interaction. His response, unlike Isaiah, will not be Here I am, Lord, send me. His response will be What? Here I am, Lord, please send someone else. Can you relate to that? But at the very initial component, the response is the same between Isaiah and Moses. Here I am, Lord. We know that a lack of a response is itself a response. Have you ever received an RSVP to a wedding and forgot to turn it back in? And then the person came to you and said, hey, are you not coming? And you're thinking, well, I just forgot to mail it. You see, a lack of a response is a response. How have you responded to the Holy Spirit of God as He's drawn near? Have you said, here I am, Lord? Or have you said, just wait. The Lord's kindness to us. Now the Lord will take a little bit more prodding. We'll see the next week the, the graciousness and the patience of the Lord in this commissioning of Moses. But here I am, Lord. And Moses is Comfort will come because the Lord will be with him and send him all along the way. The Lord meets Moses, and the Lord is the one who knows Moses' name. The Lord knows your name. The Lord knows your name. I love learning names, it's one of my favorite things to do. It really is. If you can learn a name of someone before they've learned yours, it's not a weird competitive challenge. I've got to be honest, it perhaps for me is a little bit of a weird competitive challenge. But the joy of learning someone's name and seeing them in public and identifying them, why? Because they're worth the effort of learning their name. What we see in Scripture is that the Lord knows Moses personally. The psalmist gives us greater insight, David does in Psalm 139, that he's the one who not only knows our name, but he formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's the one who saw our unformed substance. He formed us. A very day before, there was yet none of them. And Jesus gives us more insights and tells us that He's numbered our days, that He knows the hair upon our head, and so we ought to trust Him. The fact He knows us and knows our best friend better than we do ought to give us peace and comfort to trust Him every day. And so when He calls our name, we're able to say, Here I am, Lord. Doesn't that bring you joy that the Lord knows you in a deeper way than perhaps you even know yourself? We're reminded in this reality, all of us who are in Christ, all believers in this room, we hear this, that the Lord knows our name and we're moved to peace. We're in the same room and we're hearing the same text. And the fact that the Lord knows our name as believers gives us peace. But those gathered here that don't yet know Christ, it perhaps produces anxiety. He knows my name. What if he knows what I've done? What if he knows what I think? The Lord knows you better than you do. Come to Christ and find a sure and perfect king, a redeemer for your sins, and a Lord of your life commissioning you to be and make disciples for the greater purpose known to man, to take pleasure and rest in Him, our only hope in life and death. The Lord meets Moses where He is, and we see that He calls to him by His name. And thirdly, as we come to the verses five through nine or 10. The Lord communicates with clarity the terms for a healthy relationship. This first encounter that Moses has with Yahweh. The Lord gives kindness in giving clarity for how a relationship with the Holy God can have a relationship with a man who comes short of God's glory. One of our elders, Ryan Finnerud, told me that of clarity is kindness. Clarity is Kindness. Right here at the beginning, the Lord defines the relationship that is necessary, the definitions, the boundaries for Moses to have relationship with Yahweh. Let's note these three observations of how the Lord communicates with clarity the terms for a healthy relationship. In verse 5, we see that His holiness, the Lord's holiness, it demands our conformity. The Lord's holiness, it demands our what? Our conformity. I want to say that again because I need this to sink into my heart a little deeper. His holiness demands my conformity. But full confession how so often in my own life, in my own hopes, I desire and demand the Lord's conformity to my image and desires. But notice what the angel of the Lord says to him in verse 5 Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. You see, Moses' instinct to figure out and investigate why this bush is burning but not consumed is good. But if the Lord does not define their relationships, Moses will die if he gets too close to the Holy God. The Lord cannot be played with. The Lord cannot be interacted with our own means. Many religions have this often teaching, and many in our culture have this idea that we can all come to God and touch this giant elephant, and we have little pieces. We're reminded of the true one holy God. There is only one way by which we can interact with Him. Moses comes in hot with investigation, and the Lord warns him, Stop! Do not come near. Do what? Take your sandals off your feet. Why? For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The angel of the Lord, the one representing the Lord. On this mountain in the middle of relative nowhere, the rock and the dirt become a holy place. This scene becomes the tabernacle before the instructions for the tabernacle are ever given later on in this book. The place is made holy because of the Lord. What do we see in Scripture later on, believer? You have been made holy. Corinthians, we're called saints. Not because we've entered into heaven, but because the Spirit of God has entered into us. We've been made holy by the Lord's work. That's who we are. So the picture is you're holy, so now let's enjoy the pleasure of living like it. That's good news for us. The warning here is, Take off your sandals, for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. Now in Revelation 4-8, there's a scene around the throne of God that continues day and night. This continual singing. And what is sung by these four living creatures, each covered in eyes with six wings that are praising God continually? What are they singing? Listen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to on repeat, on loop. These glorious creatures are praising the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and is and is to come. Now can we be honest together? Have you ever sung a song, perhaps a worship song, that you felt like we sang the chorus one too many times? That's a confession. Confession. These creatures have been singing this and will be singing this nonstop. And the Lord is pleased at their singing. Why? Because these glorious creatures can sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come and they will never scratch the surface of the Lord's holiness. His otherness. That's how great our God is. And Jesus gives many examples of how we, those sinners, give good gifts to our children. I want to give you an illustration to model this a little further. Imagine your child comes to you one night and gives you a hug and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. How many of us would stop the child the first time and say, I got it? I got it. You don't need to say it anymore. The child's describing how they feel toward you, and one will simply not do. As a matter of fact, to hear them say it three times, what does it do to your heart? It warms you. It's true. When we as His creatures recognize who the Lord is, He's holy, He's holy, He's holy. He does not tire because it's truth. Our God is Truth. It's accurate and we're only scratching the surface for all eternity. All the believers scattered through all the world and all of church history and all church triumphant can sing holy, holy, holy and join the angels in song and will never exhaust the worthiness of His holiness. It's that God that Moses approaches the angel representative and he's warned, stop, you're on holy ground. Paul says it like this to the Corinthians in Corinth. Let me read it for you. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, Moses experiences this firsthand of a need to be made right, a need to protect himself. Take off your shoes. Paul says to the church, to the believers like this, you're going to need to take off more than your shoes to be in the presence of the holy God. You're going to need a new body. Listen to what he says in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The author of Hebrews tells us, without holiness no one will see the Lord. But good news to you, beloved, who are clothed in Christ, you will see the Lord. You will receive a glorified, resurrected body. He has taken the sandals off of our feet. We can have relationship with the thrice-holy God. His holiness demands our conformity. His holiness demands our conformity. Second, His covenant faithfulness, it produces a healthy, reverent fear. Verse 6, His covenant faithfulness produces a healthy, reverent fear. Now, working through Exodus, we've already seen a number of times how the Lord has been referred to. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here we see it again. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why did he say that? It's because only by way of covenant with Abraham some 600 years earlier-ish does Moses have a right of relationship to Yahweh. 600 years a lot has changed the geography has changed they're still not yet in the promised land that the lord promised to israel this covenant faithful god that promised a blessing upon his descendants to make them as a multitude of the number of the stars and the sand of the sea to bless them with a the land and to bless through them one who will bless the nations the messiah the christ 600 years a lot has changed But the Lord, the God of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has not changed. Believers, it's through the blood of Christ that we have confidence before our Lord, the covenant made by Christ's blood that covers us. It's through the covenant that Moses is before the Lord, and it's a realization of to whom the fire actually represents that leads Moses to do what? Look at the text in verse 6. What does Moses do when he realizes to whom exactly the fire that does not consume the bush represents? What does he do? Do you see it? He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God, God-man. Have you ever been somewhere and you realized you were underdressed? What an awkward feeling it is. I mean, severely underdressed. You just want somebody to clothe you. Matter of fact, if you're so underdressed, how many of you would just leave? Rather than being so uncomfortable knowing you're out of place. Every time we see the Lord interact with a person in Scripture or an angel of the Lord. What's the response? They feel underdressed. The angel comes and brings the burning coal and places upon Isaiah's lips to make him clean and acceptable. He's terrified. Moses here realizes this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's he do? He runs the best he can. He turns away to cover himself, intimately aware of his shortcomings. This is the second time in Exodus we've seen Moses afraid. Do you remember the first time? Look to Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. That's the first time that Moses was afraid. Do you remember what happened? He saw the wickedness of the Egyptian that was abusing the Hebrew servant, his countryman. And he strikes him and he buries his body. And then when he intercedes a second time with the two Hebrews that are fighting, they call him out. What are you going to kill us too? And what's it say? He was afraid. For surely these things have been known. He has a fear of man that leads to shame and running. But now he has an accurate fear. Everything has been put in a right place. When the fear of God swallows our fear of man, everything seems to line up in an appropriate way. He knows he's not qualified. But good news, the Lord is qualified. Now as good Bible students, Scripture interprets Scripture. Let's play that game again. Scripture interprets. All right, so since we agree on that, let's look over to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. I'll give you time to flip there. If you're in the Pewback Bible, that's page 848. Mark chapter 12. We're going to end up reading 24 through 34, but uh, let's look at 24 through 27 in particular. And then we'll notice the implications of this, because this is a scene of what we're reading that Jesus actually quotes. Now, to give you some background, as you flip here to Mark chapter 12, verse 24, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's a few distinctions, but these are the Jewish religious leaders in the first century world. And they also have, among other connections of how they could become a Sadducee, only a select group could, the Pharisees, many could become Pharisees. But of the distinctive beliefs, the Sadducees did not believe that those in the covenant of Abraham would receive a glorified, resurrected body one day. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus certainly does, and he will demonstrate that that's true. So they try to pull a trap on him. They set this perfect question trap. They think it's perfect. And now that gives us this scene here that Jesus is going to reference. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Let me read it for us. And Jesus said to them, the Sadducees and those others listening, after they set this trap, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the Exodus, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now look at the application 28 in this interaction. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is, is more important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, what happened? No one dared ask Jesus any more questions. You see, God's covenant faithfulness, it brings about a reverent fear that transforms the life of the one who understands to love the Lord and to love neighbor. Out of a realization that the Lord has made them new by faith in the Son. This is good news. His holiness demands our conformity, and his covenant faithfulness, it produces a reverent fear in our life. Moses turns away, but look what happens in verse 7 through 10. As we look thirdly and finally, that his love for his people, it brings good commands, as we've seen, to love God and love neighbor but it also brings good commissions for us to trust. Knowing God and fearing the Lord always leads us to action. Worshipful actions. Abiding in Christ will continually renew our minds by the goodness of His Word and the power of the Spirit to love and to serve others and to walk out the great and good commission that He gives us. Whose people are these servants in Egypt? They're simply slaves now. They've been fruitful and multiplied as the Lord commanded them to do. But look in verse 7. Look what the Lord says. Look what Yahweh says. I have surely seen the affliction of whose people? Of my people. The Lord has permitted his people to be fruitful and multiply, to be servants in a land that is not theirs. Whose people are they? They're His people. How easy it is to look at our circumstances and to judge and to say, that person is hopeless, helpless. But the Lord who is good and faithful, He's perfectly familiar with the cries of His people. He knows. He hears. He doesn't need a report from Moses to say, Moses, how'd you get here exactly? He doesn't ask for an update to say, hey, how's... How's my people doing? He's heard their groaning. He sees them. He's remembered them. What a beautiful reminder that the Lord is faithful and hears the cries of His people. I want to ask you a question. When do you feel the most isolated? Oftentimes it's when we're panicked and stressed and feel like nobody can identify with us. Mike Stewart shared with a few dozen of our men a couple weeks ago about biblical friendship he's speaking to a a room of men and he gave an application that I thought and an interpretive question for us to ask that I thought was so good that I have to share it with all of us when you are in isolation you're not in the will of God for your life be it physical or spiritual emotional isolation that's not what God has for us And so he asked two questions to us as a group of men, drinking the beautiful nectar of coffee that morning. He asked the first question, now I've heard this question, I've actually given this question and passed it on to you. I heard it, I thought that was really good, we passed it on, and and here's the first question he asked, but I never heard the second question that I've continued to think about for the last two weeks. He said, if you were Satan, where would you attack you? What lies would you try to get you to most easily believe? What an informative question. A screw tape letter type question. Where and how would you attack you? Where's your weakness? I thought, this is is good stuff. But then he asked a second question that convicted me. Here's the second question he asked us men. He said, is there a man who knows that weakness about you? And is he praying for you faithfully in that vulnerability? What an insight. Men, do you have another man that knows where the evil one is going to attack you? And is he faithfully praying for you? Or have you been living in isolation? Women, is there another woman in your life? that knows where the evil one is most likely to attack you and is lifting you up faithfully in prayer and loving accountability in that way. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he makes sure Moses understands that the Lord knows the intricate pain of his people. And that's the Lord's will for us. Have you forgotten God? Have you forgotten that God cares for you? Have you forgotten that God wants you in community that's being renewed by the power of Christ's love. What a tragedy it would be to not share and to walk in the goodness of candor and vulnerability together. That was the application that Mike gave to us. Do you have candor with another believer or sister that knows your weaknesses and is interceding for you? And if you don't, lean into relationship. Weave yourself into a group at grace. Confess sins and pray for each other. That's the kindness of our God. We note in verse 9 that the God saw what Moses saw. Moses saw the suffering of Israel, and what did he do? He went and he killed an Egyptian and won this small little situation, and the plans backfired, right? The Lord saw all of that. All according to His plan. But we're reminded here that God's story is a better story than man's story. Every single time. God's way and will is a better way and will than our way and will. You see, God could have done in this scene exactly what Moses did back in Egypt. God could have immediately, in hearing the groaning of His people, He could have, with a snap of a finger, with the decision to no longer sustain the lives of the abusive Egyptians, He could have immediately ended all of their lives in one second. If He did what Moses instinctually did. But God's story and God's way is a better story, isn't it? And a better way. God, rather, is going to use and commission Moses to deliver his people. Peter's story was to swing a little sword and cut off the ear of Malfurce. But Jesus' story of healing Malphers and giving the great commission and restoring Peter is a much better story, isn't it? Is there a story in your life you've come to believe that you think is a better story than God's story? Where you've struggled to trust Him in your relationship, and your marriage, with your family, with your goals in life? Submit them to Him. His story and His way is always better, isn't it, church family? His way is better. It always is. And His love leads them to a commissioning. So all of this is not to just empathize and relate to Moses, but look at verse 10. It leads to a commissioning. It's the love of God that causes him to meet with Moses, to commission him to deliver the people. This 80-year-old Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring My people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God knows and God cares and God gives a great commission. It's the same for us. It's not about us, it's God's love and mission and goodness and kindness, His holiness, His grand plan of salvation, that He commissions us to walk in unashamedly. And just as He promised Moses, what? I will be with you. What did Jesus promise in the Great Commission in Matthew 28? I will be with you, how long? Always, until the end of the age. The Lord is with us. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for His sake, who was raised from the dead. How is the love of God driving your mission in life? Embrace his way, amen? The Lord saw Moses where he was and he met him to commission him. That's God's desire for us. Now, let's look at our next steps. In this privilege of being controlled by the love of Christ, what a mission, what a hope, what news that we have. The news that the world most needs. God's comfort zone versus our comfort zone. I want to ask first, is there a portion of your life that you're so comfortable and that we're so comfortable in the portion of our time, our talents and our treasures, and our relationships, that we're so comfortable that we almost put them off limits from what the Lord can take and work and move in our lives. My question is, would you confess that to Him this morning? We're going to sing in just a moment, Come Thou Fount, and the part of this song will seem streams of mercy never ceasing. And so as you identify that, confess that to the Lord when we come to that verse. His mercy is new. He's good. and He's faithful. Number two, Moses had a unique role to play in salvation history. We are not Moses. But how his trust in Christ moved you outside of your comfort zone to live on mission. Have a conversation about it with someone this week. And share perhaps how the Lord's love is going to move you to be more on mission, whether it's showing hospitality or caring for others, having boldness to speak of the good news you have in Christ. May His love move you and compel us to mission as it did for Paul. And third, ask God to forgive you if you've become complacent and begun to believe that God has done working in and through your life. As long as we have breath in our lungs, is He done with us? No. I was amazed with the students this week. I was particularly amazed at their awareness of the danger of a camp high, they called it. They would travel that great distance and go to camp, and then perhaps in a matter of days or weeks, it would fizzle out. They would go back to the routines, and we were reminded that our faith is a practice. It's a practice. The Lord has made us perfect in Christ, and we practice the hope that we have, that His mercies are made new, that He's worthy of our praise. If you're here this morning not knowing who Jesus is, your next step is to confess your faith in Christ and find eternal life in him. And to the many of us who know Christ, we set our hearts upon worship with confidence through the finished work of Christ. And we ask the Lord to use us to be a people who are unashamed to make disciples until he should call us home to see him face to face. Amen. Let's stand together and give him a praise of song.